So we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Uh, we're actually only going to be focusing on verses 14 through 16, but I want to begin reading in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. And so when you've arrived there, would you stand as we read God's Word together? And the title of this morning's sermon is, Disciple Making is a Family Affair. Disciple Making is a Family Affair. So Colossians 3, beginning... In verse 5, Paul writes this, he says, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now, put away all the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of your creator in Christ. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, scathian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore... As God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Verse 14, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, this morning we are, we're back again thinking through this idea of disciple-making disciples. Uh, and if you remember, a, a little bit of a shift occurred last week. Uh, so last week, we moved from focusing primarily on what it looks like to be a disciple. We spent the month of January talking a little bit about what it looks like to just be a faithful disciple, to be someone who follows after Jesus and runs hard after him. But again, last week, it, it shifted a little bit, and we began to start thinking about not, not so much what is a disciple, but what does it look like to start to engage in this disciple-making process, And so Pastor Lance reminded us that discipleship does not necessarily begin when a person comes to faith. The process of of making a disciple doesn't necessarily begin when someone comes to faith, but the process actually begins when we take the gospel to those who are lost. The first step in the discipleship process is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with those who have not heard. And so... As we do that, as we share the gospel, we are effectively beginning this discipleship process. Because remember, a person will never follow Jesus if they're not first introduced to Jesus. And Pastor Lance reminded us that if we're going to be faithful in witnessing, right? Can can he get a witness? That was the title of it. If we're going to be faithful in that, we have to have the right power, which, which is derived from the Holy Spirit. 
Right? We don't have to muster up the strength on our own, but the Holy Spirit gives us power to take the message to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But not only do we have to have the right power, but we have to have the right message. And so Pastor Lance reminded us of the gospel. Do you remember kind of the four parts he walked through? Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so he modeled for us what it looks like to proclaim the message of the gospel. And, and then third, we have to have the right hope. And, and it is the charge, and, and he, he expressed this, and, and I want to be clear in reemphasizing it, that it is the charge of every believer to take the gospel to the lost. That is not an optional aspect of being a disciple of Jesus. It is the charge, it is the commission to anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus. The call is to go and make disciples, to teach, to, to share the gospel. And so we pray for and we plead with God to save because we know that it is only God who can change and cultivate a heart so that is receptive to the gospel. Amen? That, that's important. It is not on you to change someone's heart. It is not on you to create a new heart in them. Because I'm just going to tell you, you don't have that power. And that's okay, but God does. And so God can change and cultivate a heart so that it is ready and it is receptive when, when it hears the gospel. And we, church, we rejoice when people come to faith. But the question then becomes, what next? What next? So let's say that we, we go and we share the gospel with someone, someone maybe we just met on the street or someone we've been witnessing to for, for years on end, and they profess faith in Jesus, and we're excited, and we're hyped, right? And we should be excited. We should be hyped. Like angels in heaven rejoice when one person places their faith in Christ. So we get excited, and then the question is, now what? What do we do? What's the next step in the disciple-making process? And I would argue here at the front end, that the next step in the disciple-making process, after we have proclaimed the gospel and they have expressed faith and repentance, the next step is to bring them into and help them find their place in the family of God. To bring them into and help them find their place in the family of God so that they can grow in the discipleship process. And as we will see here in just one moment, it is in the context of the church. It is in the family where the long-term work of discipleship takes place. I, I, I believe our text argues that very thing. So we, we began reading right in, in verse 5, and, and in verse 5 there's a call to, to kind of put off the old ways, to take off the old man. It says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And it says, because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now put away all the following, anger and wrath and malice and slander and filthy language from your mouth. And then picking up in verse 12, right? So there's this call to not only put off these aspects of the old man, but there's this call to put on aspects of the new creation that we are in Christ. And so Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you. What a powerful statement. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. This is discipleship. 
This is what it looks like to be made more into the image of Jesus. It's the discipleship process played out. As we follow Jesus, we begin to look more like Jesus. And in order to do this, we have to start putting to death, right? Killing some of these aspects of the old man. Because I don't know if you know this. I'm assuming you do if you are a believer. When you became a Christian and you were made new, not every part of that old person was shed off of you. Amen? Yeah, that should have got a bigger amen. We a mess. Amen? It didn't just go away. But part of this discipleship process as it plays itself out is we are day by day beginning to kill more and more of these aspects of the old man. And we are replacing them with with these pictures of of Jesus, these aspects of Jesus. Then the verse, it it goes on and and in where we're going to focus on verses 14 through 16 and, and, and notice the context in which this discipleship takes place. It says, above all, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in wisdom, teaching, in all wisdom, teaching and admonish, admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So did you catch where the discipleship process is meant to be played out? It's in that one body that we are. It is in the context of the church. It is in the family of God. We are not meant to be made to look more like Jesus in isolation. That's not where that work is supposed to be done. The discipleship process is not supposed to play itself out solely as you sit alone with your Bible and in prayer. And those are good things, amen? But that is not where discipleship is meant to play itself out. It's meant to happen in the context of the family, in the church. And this shouldn't be a shock to us because we've heard, you've heard me say this before if you've been around. Some of you, this is going to be brand new for you. And so I'll say it again. Some of you are like, again, Michael, but that's okay. It is amazing to me. It really is, which is probably why I bring it up so often, that immediately after faithful gospel presentations in the Bible, almost without fail, the first thing that the authors tell people to change their mind about, to change their, their behavior about, to, to, to begin to think through, the first thing is always their place in the family of God. Right? You've heard me say before, Ephesians 1 through 3 is this beautiful explanation of the gospel, right? Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, the prince, the power of the air, spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. It goes on, it says, but God, being rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. He walks through this beautiful explanation of the gospel. And then the very next thing, therefore, in Ephesians 4, is how we understand the oneness of the body and our place within it. In the book of Romans, again, Paul spends chapters 1 through 11 giving this beautiful, theologically rich, this discourse, this this amazing presentation of the gospel, right? Starts at Adam and works all the way to Jesus. He lays it all out. And then in chapter 12, therefore, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the first thing he talks about renewing your mind about is the family of God. It is, it is always one of the first things mentioned after a faithful gospel presentation. So it shouldn't shock us when we hear that God has kind of ordained that this growth to look more like Jesus take place in the context of the church. Amen? That, that's where it's meant to happen. And what this tells us is that having a healthy family matters. 
having a healthy family matters. And in some sense, we already know this to be true when we look at earthly families, don't we? I mean, I just kind of got on the internet, because you can find anything on the internet, and just kind of looked up some, some facts about healthy families, and, that, and, that, and that's what I was looking at, and, and, and I pulled some of them. So, so research shows that in, in an earthly sense, healthy families matter to the upbringing of a child. Right, children grow, It says children growing up in homes with two parents who have been married continuously are less likely to experience a wide range of problems, academic, social, emotional, and cognitive, not only in childhood, but later on in adulthood as well. One study showed that family intactness greatly increases high school and college graduation rates as well as high employment rates. Similarly, family intactness increases economic growth potential exponentially in a home. Another study showed that continuously married homes produce less future divorces in the family. And this one was shocking to me. I I looked at one survey and it was taken among Christians and it showed that, that children of consistently married couples had a clearer and less doubted understanding of the gospel. So we know, right, I say all this to show that this research indicates, and we know at a gut level that a healthy earthly family plays a significantly positive role in the lives of children. How much more should that be true of the church? That a healthy church will dramatically increase the growth of those who are in it. I heard one author say it like this, and I really like this quote. He said, if it takes a village to raise a child... It takes a church to raise a Christian. That's good, isn't it? If it takes a village to raise a child, I saw a funny meme the other day where somebody said that, like, I'm still, I'm, if that's true, I'm still waiting for the village to show up because my kid's a mess. Um, but right, if it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a church to raise a Christian. And so if we are going to be disciple-making disciples, We have to make sure that the church we are bringing people into is healthy. I'm not talking about broadly. I'm talking about us right here, family, new breed. If we want to see disciples made, we have to make sure that this body, the covenant members here, that we are healthy and that this church is healthy. So then the question becomes, how do we cultivate a healthy church family so that discipleship can flourish? What does a healthy church family look like? And I believe our text this morning, specifically verses 14 through 16, answer that question for us. So here's the first truth that I want you to see this morning about a healthy church. A healthy church family is united in love. A healthy church family is united in love. Look with me again at verse 14. Paul says, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So what's going on here, right, is I know we're just jumping into the middle of a book. So in Colossians, Paul is writing to faithful Christians at the church in Colossae, right? And he begins by reminding them uh, of Christ's preeminence in all things, that Christ is first, right? He's directly dealing with a heresy that's being taught in Colossae, but he's reminding them that Christ is in all. He is above all. All things hold together in him. Christ is preeminent in all things. And then he speaks a little of his ministry to them. But you get a, a better glimpse 
glimpse as to the purpose of the book of Colossians in in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where Paul says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. And then he says this, right? And if this is not a picture of discipleship, he says, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. So after warning them then to not turn away, to not go astray, he moves into chapter three where we are and begins to talk about what it looks like to live in Christ, what it looks like to be built up and established in the faith, basically what it looks like to grow as a disciple. And so he lists these things to put off, which we just read. And then he lists these things to put on, which we just read. And then he makes the statement that we come to in verse 14, but above all this, Put on love. You see, what Paul understands and what Paul wants to communicate is that at the very core, at the very center, over compassion, over kindness, over humility, over gentleness, over patience, over bearing with one another, over forgiving one another, I would dare say over teaching and over truth and over wisdom, over all of these things is this umbrella that we call love. Above all these things, there must be love. A genuine and real love for God, and and very important, a genuine and real love for those in the family. Hear me, church. If any church is going to be a healthy, disciple-making church, it has to be grounded in real love. Then you might be thinking, well, I know this, Michael. This is kind of the core. We talk about this all the time. Love God, love people. We get this, right? We, we understand that, that at the core it has to be love. But, but we have to make sure we understand the depth of what that means. Because, you, you, you know, a church is not united in common interest. We can all really like Jesus, and it won't unite us. A church is not united in their ability to get along. A church is not united because they enjoy hanging out with people in the church. A church is not united because you feel like your needs are being met. A church is united and faithful and it lasts when it is built on love. Now let's look at what the Bible says about love. 1 Corinthians 13, right, is kind of the love chapter of the Bible, and and God defines for us what love is. And so this is kind of the litmus test of our love, right? How are we doing? And, And Paul writes, he says that love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self- seeking. Look, we could preach a sermon about self-seeking versus love. So many, and not y'all, right? Because y'all got this figured out. Okay, so I'm talking about the other Christians. So many people judge the effectiveness, the worth, and their endurance in a church based on whether or not they feel like their needs are being met. That is not love. That is the antithesis of love. That is self-seeking. He goes on, he says that love is not irritable. Look, I read the emails that y'all send me. I'll just leave it at that. You'll, you'll pick up on that later with the irritable. It says that love does not keep a record of wrong. Oh, that's so tough, isn't it? For some people, even in the church, the laundry list of other people's mistakes is so long, and we refuse to let it go. And there's no place for holding a grudge in 
the family of God. It says that love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It says that love bears all things. In other words, when things get tough in the church, when you don't like a decision that was made, you don't like a direction that we're headed, what it means that love bears all things, it says we're not going to run to the next church because we don't like how this is playing out. You know that for the Christians in, in like the first century, there wasn't a church on every corner. There was no other place to run to. No, we, they stood the ground and they fought for the good of each other. They fought to love and they fought to make much of Jesus, even when something didn't go their way. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. This is love. But 1 Corinthians 13 also tells us what we are like if we don't have love. It says if I speak, Paul says if I speak in a human or angelic tongue but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I mean just pause there with that for a minute. What a statement that is that if I can speak with this angelic tongue but I don't have love, I'm nothing but a clanging gong, clashing cymbal. Now, I don't know if you know much about cymbals. I really thought about just like getting a drumstick for a minute, just like beating one of these cymbals. But in my head, I was like, there might be kids asleep. And I'm just not about that. I don't want any moms mad at me, right? We're trying to fight against irritability. Uh, I see some moms shaking their heads, right? But, but the picture there, right, is that if I have all these, if I can speak with the most elegance, if I can speak with angelic tongues, but, all, uh, but I do all of this without love, I'm basically an annoyance and a nuisance, Annoyance and a nuisance, right? Some of us need to hear that because we think as long as we speak truth, I'm going to speak my truth, right? And it's truth, so, it, so you have to listen and it matters. It's like, no, no, no. The Bible says that if you do that without love, it is just an annoyance. It doesn't matter how good your truth is. Think about the implications of that with sharing the gospel. That you can preach the gospel to someone, you can proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, and when you're doing it from a, a heart of duty and obligation, or I have to, and it's not flowing from love, the Bible is telling you that you are basically an annoyance. You're an annoyance. But Paul goes on, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy, right, and, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, like, I want that, don't you? A faith that can move mountains. He says, but if I have all of that, but I don't love, I am nothing. He goes on, he says, if I give away all my possessions, and if I give my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is so important to the foundation of a healthy, disciple-making church. But love also does something. And Paul notes this, right? He says, above all, put on love. And then he says, which is the perfect bond of unity. See, when we love, we're also creating an atmosphere for unity. So love is the perfect bond of unity, right? It, it, it unites all those other characteristics that we are to pursue, right? Kindness, humility, compassion. It unites all those things together. But love, if it is, if it is the perfect bond of unity, it also unites us together. Again, I want to be clear about this. We will not be held together by good pastors, we will not be held together by a growing budget. We will not be held together when we get our own building. We will not be held together because we like one another. We will only be held together by our love 
for one another. But do you realize, and this is so insane, I mean, there's so many things that God is doing when we love well. Not only are we united, but, but you know that as we love, we are also testifying to our faith and our discipleship. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. What? If you love one another. That's a powerful passage of scripture. He doesn't say everyone will know that you are my disciples when you tell everyone that you are my disciples. Everyone will know that you are my disciples when, when you go out there and you meet all the needs of the community. No, no, he says, everyone will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. There is a powerful testimony that God is at work when we are united in love and we genuinely care for one another. But I want to be clear about this. Love takes work. It is not a, merely a feeling that we have, but a discipline to be pursued. That's very important. Because I think so often we think, you know, this is why I think, this is a side note, right? Soapbox. I'm tired. I can get away with it, right? That's why I think so many marriages fall apart. Because people think that love is supposed to just be natural. That if I just like this person, we'll be madly in love. And it'll always stay that way. And they forget that love takes work. Can I get any married people that will agree with that? That was the biggest amen we've ever gotten in New Breed. We're on to something here. I love my wife to death. I, I do. I am so thankful. We've been married for a few years now. And I can tell you that, that my love has not always been a natural feeling for me. And she would say the same thing. But it takes work. It takes commitment. It takes fighting for it. Because what love produces, right, these, these fruits of the spirits are something that we have to pursue. We have to work at. And so we have to fight to love well, we have to do this, church, because how in the world will we love people well who walk through the doors when we can't love people well who are already here? But I want you to know this, and this is the great encouragement. We are able to love because God has first loved us. This leads to the second truth that I want you to see. A healthy church family is ruled by the gospel. A healthy church family is ruled by the gospel. Look at verse 15. Paul says, And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. So in essence, right, Paul is telling us how we can love like this. And he says that in order for this to happen, the peace of Christ must rule in our hearts. So, so my first question is, okay, what is the peace of Christ then? What is it that has to rule in my heart if I'm to love like this? And we get that answer when we look at Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. So what is the peace of Christ? Ephesians 2, 14, 16 says, for he is our peace. Jesus is our peace. And how? It says, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might, listen to this, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. And here's why he did it. It says he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. That is an amazing passage of Scripture. 
Because what it tells us is that Jesus Christ himself is our peace. And that peace is understood in the context of the gospel. The gospel that we believe, this message that we cling to, right? That we are sinners, every one of us. We are born in sin. We have rebelled against God. We have pursued lesser things. We have pursued worthless things. We have pursued things that we thought would bring us satisfaction, but always fall short. And in turn, we have abandoned God. As Jeremiah 2.13 says, the spring of living water. So we've chosen broken, cracked wells that can't hold water. And here is this ever-flowing, ever-present spring of life, and we have rejected him. And it's not just a rejection. We've uh, waged war against him. And God should rightly destroy us, right? Our sin separates us from God. We see that in the garden when he removed Adam and Eve from his presence. He was showing that you cannot be with me in your sin. And so apart from Jesus, we live this life separated from God. And apart from Jesus, we will die and be eternally separated from God. But God loved us so much that he sent Jesus. He loved us so much that he sent Jesus. And Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled the law perfectly so that he could do away with it, with its regulations and requirements, right? He fulfilled the law perfectly. He lived this life so he was innocent. He did not deserve death. And he died on the cross in our place. He died for us. And God poured out his wrath and his judgment on Jesus. And he was buried and raised from the dead three days later. And God, through the work of Christ, has made a way for us to be reconciled. You see, this truth that we believe, this gospel, what Jesus has done, it declares to us that Jesus has made a way for us to be reconciled to God, and he has made a way for us to be reconciled to one another in Christ because of what he has done. We can be made right with God and with other people, and we can love because he has first loved us. We can love God, and we can love people. I mean, in that passage in Ephesians 2, it's so powerful because it says that, listen, God is reconciling, you've heard me say it before, he's reconciling to himself one person, his bride. And so in order to have one bride, he had to take what was broken among us and bring us together. He had to reconcile us so that he could reconcile his one bride to himself. And what that shows to us is that the unity in the body is very significant for the gospel. Is it not? That the picture is of a united people being united to God. And so what does that say about our understanding of the gospel? If we are not united, if we are not united in love and pursuing the good of one another. But what does this reconciliation look like? I love this. It looks like family. Ephesians 1.5 tells us that he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. There is a beautiful reality that we often overlook or diminish, and I think it's often unintentional. It is for me, at least. It's, it's, it's that God, through Christ, not only gave us a new life, he not only gave us a new eternal home, he gave us a new family. A real family, and it is made up of aunties and uncles and brothers and sisters and spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers from different backgrounds, from different times in history, from different cultures and ethnicities, all united under the blood of Jesus. It's a new family. And as amazing as that is, what is even more amazing is the fact that this God that we had raged against, This God that we had made our enemy 
is now our Father. And what's even crazier is that Scripture speaks of Jesus as our older brother. We have a new family because of what Christ has done. This is not just a gathering of people that like to get together on Sundays. This is a family reunion every time we get together where we praise the God that has adopted us and made us one. And I want to stress to you how significant this new family is. It is, as best as I can see in Scripture, the most meaningful family. There's that story, right, of Jesus. And we know this story when he was in a room teaching in a house. And it says that his disciples were inside the house with him. They were near him. They were hearing. They were listening. They were being discipled. And and Jesus' mother and his brothers came to him. And they knocked on the door. And they said, hey, we want to see our son and our brother. And Jesus responds. And he said that these here are my mothers and brothers. That is a powerful picture. Jesus is not saying that he doesn't care about the family, the natural family. We know that. We see that all throughout Scripture. But what he is communicating is that there is this bond, this familial unit that is stronger than this earthly bond. And it's stronger because of what it costs for us to be adopted in. It was the blood of Jesus. We have a new family. And I believe this church that this truth, when we really begin to start to wrap our our heads and our minds around this idea that God is our father, it will change some stuff. J.I. Packer said it like this. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as his father, if, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. He goes on, he says, for everything that Christ taught and everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old and everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God the Father. We have a better father amen because some of us might have good earthly fathers some of us might have bad earthly fathers some of us might not even know our earthly fathers and in christ jesus we have a better father one who will never falter and never fail and never stumble and his discipline is always perfect it's never too harsh it's never too gentle it is always loving it is perfect and he is perfect And that's why you could argue that the church is so significant because the church is not just a gathering of Christians. It is a family. And I want to be clear about this. We need this family. We need this family. God did not set up this adoption thing because he thought it would be a cute picture to give us in Scripture, right? He didn't just think that it would be a neat way to try to portray it. No, he did this because he knew that it was best for us and it was what we needed. He knew that as we walked this Christian life seeking to be made more in the image of Jesus, we needed one another for that. We needed a family where it was safe to expose our weakness and our faults and our failures and our struggles and know that there are brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles and spiritual fathers and mothers who are not condemning us, who are not judging us, but who are longing to see us made more like Jesus because they love us. And you need to know 
I'm trying to stress this. It's so important that there are aspects of your discipleship. There are aspects of being made more in the image of Jesus that cannot happen outside of the context of the church. They cannot happen outside of the context of the church. Yeah, there are things that we can get on our own. We know that there's growth that can happen. We are on our faces by ourselves before the Lord, pleading with him when we are in his word. But there are some things that can only be shaped and molded in the context of the family. That's why it's such a travesty when we neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. But know this, it is the gospel that makes us family. And as the gospel rules our hearts, we will be reminded of what it of what it cost us to be adopted and the great privilege it is to be in the family of God. And this will drive us to love because we will reflect on the fact that he has first loved us even though we didn't deserve it. But here's the last thing that I want you to see, that love, right? It will lead us to action. So here's the, the third truth of a, a healthy church family that I think we see here in this passage. It's that a healthy church family is intentional. A healthy church family is intentional. It's not enough to just believe these things. It's not just enough to believe we have to be united in love. It's not enough to just believe that the gospel unites us and brings us into this family of God. That a healthy church family is also intentional. It's intentional in its actions. Look at verse 16. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. You see, our love for one another and this family rooted in the gospel demands more than just niceties. We need to hear that. That, that, that this love for one another and this family rooted in the gospel, it demands more than just niceties among us. And you know what I mean, those like superficial, hey, how are you? Good to see you. How are things going? Great. Don't care. Going to forget about it when we walk away, right? The church has to be deeper than that. It has to be bigger than that. It demands... Right? This love and this gospel ruling our heart, it demands that we be intentional about seeing our brothers and sisters made to look more like Jesus. It demands that we make disciples, not only of new people that come in, but of those that are already here. And it demands that we be willing to be pushed to be made to look more like Jesus. And all of this flowing from a love that is grounded in the gospel. And in verse 16, Paul communicates what this intentional action through love and gospel-ruled hearts, what it will look like. And first, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. You see, we, will, we have to understand that we will always produce what we are. We will always produce what we are. That's true for parents. It is. Right? Like if, if you are a harsh parent, you will produce a harsh child. Now, I'm not saying they can't grow and be different. Plenty of kids do that. But you know what I mean, right? Like, if you yell at your child, I say this to parents all the time. Like, we, we do some parenting stuff, uh, work with parents. Um, we've done some here at the center. But I tell parents all the time, if you always yell at your child when they do something wrong, don't punish your child when they yell at you because you do something wrong. Because you've just shown them what the appropriate response is. Don't, it's not fair. A five-year-old is learning everything from you. But it's not just for parents, right? If you, if you are a manager, if you are a boss, if you have people that work under you, right, in your job or what, whatever that looks like, you will produce what you are. 
If you are a lazy boss, you will produce lazy workers. Right? If you are an overly authoritative boss, you will produce overly authoritative workers. We produce what we are. That's really scary too, and we reflect on about that as pastors, because that's true for us as pastors, right? We will reflect what we are. So if I am lazy in my time in the Word and lazy in prayer, not only am I doing myself spiritual harm, but I'm doing you spiritual harm, because it will show in my leadership of you. And the Bible says, like Paul says, right, that I should be able to say to you, imitate me as I imitate Christ, which for me as a pastor is the scariest verse of Scripture. We produce what we are, but the same is true for disciple-making. We will produce what we are. So if we're saying, man, I want to make disciples, I want to see people grow to look more like Jesus, I'm going to step into people's lives, I'm going to love like you're calling me to love, I'm going to be ruled by the gospel, I'm going to do all those things, know that you will produce what you are, which is why Paul starts and says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right? We have to make sure we are grounded in the truth of Scripture so that we produce disciples that are grounded in the truth of Scripture, but also because Scripture is the only way that real disciple-making will happen. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 Pastor Lance quoted this last week, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Part of being made to look more like Jesus is being taught and being corrected and, and, and being trained in righteousness. And this happens through the word. So we have to be rooted in the word if we are going to create disciples who are rooted in the word. Are you tracking with me? But not only that, we just need the Bible to love Jesus. Amen. I mean, we need to hear from God. This is God speaking to us. But the first way that we're intentional is that we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. But then he goes on and he says this. He says, and don't be afraid to teach. Now, this is such an interesting thing to me because he says this to the entire church of Colossae. And I think sometimes we've got we to think a little bit more correctly about this idea of teaching because we have limited teaching the Bible typically in the church. We limit that just to pastors and elders and leaders, right? Like it's their job to teach the Bible. But what this passage tells us is that it's your job to teach the Bible. It's your job to teach the Bible. Yes, that does not mean that there are not those who are gifted in teaching and the Lord calls and sets apart for teaching, but it does not remove the burden from you. Let me give you another practical example. In Ephesians 4, there are four offices of the church that are talked about, right? It says, and he gave some to be prophets, apostles, teachers, and you know what the fourth one is? Anybody? Evangelists. There is a specific gifting for evangelism. Some people, there are people in this church who have a, a gift. God has given them a specific gift of evangelism. I'll be straight with you. I don't have that gift. I, I, I don't think that that is a gifting that the Lord has given. I think it's one that Pastor John has. I don't think I have that gifting. But what I don't think is that because I don't have that gifting, Matthew 28 doesn't apply to me. I don't have to share the gospel anymore because I don't have the unique gifting of evangelism. No, 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 that's not how it works. The same is true with teaching. You might not have the gift of teaching like a pastor or an elder or, or even a lay person has, but it does not remove your obligation to be teaching the Bible. And we should be teaching the Bible all the time. Parents, you should be teaching the Bible every day to your children. Husbands and wives, you should be teaching the Bible to one another as you are encouraging one another and spurring one another on. As we sit down with people and they are wrestling through something and the Lord brings scripture to mind, we should be able to share that scripture and break down what it means. That is teaching the Bible. What we do up here on Sunday mornings is not all that teaching is. 
It is one aspect of teaching that takes place in the church. But have you ever thought about that? You are called, if you are to be a disciple maker, you are called to teach the word. Titus talks about this. It talks about older men teaching younger men and older women teaching younger women. I mean, it's riddled throughout scripture that it's not just the pastor's job to teach. And so some of us have to start adopting this mindset that, man, God has called me to teach the Bible. So we shouldn't be asking the question of, should I be teaching the Bible? The question is, who should I be teaching it to? Who has God called me to and placed in front of me that I can teach the word of God to? And that is the responsibility of every believer. But that's how we grow, is it not? The Bible, right, is what corrects and reproves and trains in righteousness, which means if we want to see people corrected and reproved and trained in righteousness and growing in righteousness, we have to be teaching the Bible to them. But it also says, thirdly, not only do we let the word dwell in us so that we can then teach the word, it also says that we admonish one another. Now, this admonish word is really interesting to me. It's a powerful word. So the Greek word comes from this root word that's a nutheteo. And so let me give you the definition of nutheteo, so what he, what he means when he says admonishing, because I really like it. He says, admonishing is it's an appeal to the mind, supplying doctrinal and spiritual substance, and it exerts positive pressure on someone's logic and reasoning, and I like this, urging them to choose God's best urging them to choose God's best. And so when we admonish one another, oftentimes that's in the context of when someone is not choosing God's best. And our job is to come and to encourage them and push them and persuade them to choose God's best. And admonishing can often have some correction. And, and, and I want to I say this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of end with this, church. My prayer, I've said this before to you. I, I believe that you can judge very clearly the health of a church by the church's willingness to, con, to confess their sin to one another. Because admonishing can only happen when we see some of the dark parts of people's lives. Not only were you meant to look more like Jesus in the context of the church, and I know this is going to sound really weird, not that we want this, but you were also meant to sin in the context of the church, meaning that you don't grow to look like Jesus in public and then deal with your sin in private. I think one of the greatest things that could happen to Christians is that God forces our sin to be exposed to our brothers and sisters around. For some of us, that's scary. Full, full disclosure, that's scary to me. There are parts of my heart that I want to keep hidden that I don't want you to see because they're embarrassing and, and I'm afraid that you'll look at me sideways and that you will judge me and that you will think less of me. But, but what scripture calls us to is that, man, we have to be willing to bring this to the light. That's why we're told to confess our sins to one another because how else, listen to me, how else can we take off all of those things that are mentioned in verse five of sexual immorality and impurity and lust and anger and wrath and malice? How can we take those things off if it's never being exposed that we are wrestling with those things? And sometimes the only way that we can be exposed is when we bring our lives into the light and let people look in and say, hold on, man, I don't even know if you know that this is sin. But let me love you and let me teach you and let me walk with you so that you can look more like Jesus on the other side of this. Church, we have got to, if we want to be a healthy church that makes disciples, get beyond it. I'm not saying we don't do it, hear me. I'm not saying that we don't do it, but we have got to make sure we are constantly getting beyond the superficial. 
the niceties and the greetings, but we are willing to press in to one another's lives. That is why it is so dangerous when we are in the midst of sin and we pull back from the church because how can admonishment take place? And I want to be clear, this is not a correction and admonishment that comes from anger and a harshness. It flows from a genuine love for our brothers and sisters, wanting them to grow in this area and wanting them to look more like Jesus. I can tell you this and I'll move on. There has not been any major area of sin in my life that I have overcome on my own. Not one. Every major hurdle for me in my sanctification, every, every dark stain and sin that I have had to wrestle through that was just dominating my heart and my mind has only been overcome by the Holy Spirit working through the body and other believers who have been pushing me to grow. We need one another and we have to be intentional to create this healthy family. You see, if we are going to make healthy disciples, once we share the gospel with them, we have to bring them into a healthy church family, which means, brothers and sisters who are here, we have to be fighting daily to be a healthy church family. And as we come to conclusion, I just want to say this. If you are here and you have not placed your faith in Jesus, you are not a part of this family. And I don't say that to be mean. I don't say that to be harsh. Believe me, one of the things that my wife and I say to our children frequently, we tell them this, is that mommy and daddy are a part of a family that you're not a part of. But we pray that you will be one day. And we tell them it's a better family. You have more aunties and more uncles, and these ones love Jesus. These ones want what's best for you. And so we pray that you will be in this family as you come to faith in Jesus. But if you are here and you have not placed your faith in Christ, you might be a part of a church. You might read your Bible. You might pray. You might, you might hang out with Christians. But if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, you have not been adopted into this family. But you can today. Because God is still adopting children from all over the world. With all different stories and all different struggles, he is saving them and bringing them into the family. And you come to the family by placing your faith in Jesus and what he has done for us by dying on the cross to save us from our sins and from repenting of our sins by turning away, believing that what Jesus has is best and running after him. And you can be a part of that family today. And I want to see you. I love our family. It's big. I want it to get bigger. I want more brothers and sisters and more aunties and uncles. And I'll take more spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers because it will only be for our good. Amen. Let us fight new breed to be a healthy church family that makes disciples well.